Good morning. Uh, if it is your first time here, uh, we want to welcome you to our service. And after, we would love to, uh, to meet you afterwards. Uh, starting today, uh, I want to do something uh, a little different. Uh, from now on, during our worship service, uh, after we read our Bible passage and before we hear the preaching of God's Word, uh, I want to sing a, a short song. It's a song entitled, Speak, O Lord. And this song, if we can pull it up, is actually a prayer. And if you look at the lyrics, uh, through this song, through this prayer, we are asking God to uh, speak to us. We are asking God to prepare us as we listen, not just with our ears, but as we listen with our hearts. If you notice, before we read the Bible passage, we say, Let's, op let's have God's Word open us up, right? And it's a way of inviting God, hey, God, can you speak to us? And through this very ordinary and routine method of preaching, can you transform us? Can you make us more like you? Uh, it's a song that I think speaks powerfully to just our, our, our posture, our disposition before we hear the preaching of God's Word. And if I can share just a, a personal experience, uh, I sang this song uh, last month at a conference, and uh, it was uh, the first day of the conference, the first opening session. Uh, I was tired from traveling, and I wasn't really that enthused about the speaker. Uh, but the, the worship team led this with this song. And as I was singing it, it really, it prepared me, it primed me to hear God's word. And so, uh, every week, what we will do is, uh, after we read God's Word, uh, we will sing this song, and then we will receive the Word. So, let's all sing this together. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the fruit of your holy Word. Take your truth Plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Amen. Uh, earlier this year, we uh, introduced uh, to our congregation the theme verse for 2019. The theme verse for 2019 was John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. It's, it reads like this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is uh, the theme verse for 2019, and as a church, we wanted to make a concerted effort towards this. However, the question would then be, well, what does this look like? 
You know, love can be overly theoretical. Love can be something that's so abstract, and we don't know exactly what it looks like. And so, we ask the question, well, what does it mean to love one another? And so, we suggested three practical ways that we can love one another. These were the three practical ways. First, to be present in each other's lives. Second, to pray for one another. And third, to pursue one another. Now, you do remember all this, right? It's, it's only been four months. Uh, but this is what we had introduced to the congregation. This is what we want to try to do in 2019. We want to love one another by being present, by praying, and by pursuing one another. Well, uh, since we are almost at the halfway point of 2019, I thought, it would, I thought uh, right now would be a good time to revisit our theme. And so today, what we'll do is we will look at what it means to be present in one another's lives. And then the following two weeks, we'll explore the latter two points. So first, be present with one another. Off the bat, I know that this point might sound unavailing. It might sound as if I'm wasting my breath. Of all the ways that we can express love, whether it be care, service, forgiveness, you might wonder and ask, why is being present the first point? Well, it's the first point because too often, I think we undermine the value of physically just being there for someone. The importance of being present in the lives of others is something that we often, often take for granted. David Brooks, who is a well-known author and the writer for the New York Times, recently had an awakening. Uh, he had spent most of his life uh, striving for success, striving for achievement, for personal goals and his career. He spent most, most of his life, his time and his efforts towards achieving uh, what he had dreamed up of. And uh, recently he had a bit of an awakening and he writes in his book entitled The Second Mountain. As he reflects back upon his life, he writes this. When I look back generally on the errors and the failures and sins of my life, they tend to be failures of omission failures to truly show up for the people I should have been close to. They tend to be the sins of withdrawal, evasion, workaholism, conflict avoidance, failure to empathize, and a failure to express myself openly. I've been too busy, too disorganized, too distant when my friends were in need or just available for me. I look at those dear friendships with a gratitude mixed with shame. And this pattern of not being present to what I love because I prioritize time over people, productivity over relationship, is a reoccurring motif in my life. When David Brooks realized this as he looked back upon his life, he had this crushing moment where he felt as though everything was crumbling. I think many of us can resonate with this. Presently, we live in a time where we've given everything over to technology because it provides ease and convenience. 
but it has come at the cost of real human interaction. We live in a social media world where these virtual networks, though promising friendship, in actuality makes us more lonely and segregated. We live in a meritocratic society where one's worth is measured not by relationships, but by achievements and accomplishments. And as, and as a result of all of these things, we live in a time where social isolation is not an exception, but it has become the norm. Let me give you an example of all these things sort of working together in my own personal life. On days when I feel really busy, when I have a lot of work to do, and I have a lot of meetings lined up, I order lunch on my phone through an app called Grubhub. But when I order lunch on my phone, to save on delivery fee, I opt to pick up. Now on this one occasion, I had ordered a sandwich at a local deli. Excuse me, I had ordered a hoagie from a local deli. And uh, it said that it was gonna be ready in about 45 minutes, and so I timed it perfectly. I did work for about 30 minutes, timed it so that I can get there in 15 minutes so I can get on with my day. When I walked into the store, the owner asked if I was the Grubhub customer. And I said, yes. And he asked me this question. Hey, how come you didn't just come into the store and order your food? It takes about five minutes to make a sandwich. Or better yet, he asks, why didn't you just call into the store? And the truth is, I wanted to save five minutes. Meritocracy. I didn't want to waste my time in a store waiting for my food. And the truth is, I didn't really want to talk to the guy. Because the last time I was there, he kept asking me, like, have you tried our milkshakes? Have you tried our milkshakes? And I didn't want to try any milkshakes. And I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want any human interaction. Because I was so in the zone. I was in my work. So I used technology, my phone, to order and pay for my meal so that I wouldn't have to talk to anyone. But here's the ironic part. When I went back and I was having my sandwich, it occurred to me that I didn't have a conversation with a single human being that day. And as, and as a result, I felt isolated. I felt a bit of a loser. <laughs> and I felt a little lonely. You know, being present in the life of others, while we may consider it to be a given, something we all assume to be a part of everyday life, is actually something that we have to be reminded of. And it's something that we have to constantly fight for. You know, interestingly, uh, the church in the first century struggled with this same exact issue, albeit for different reasons. Specifically, with the church in Rome to whom this letter is addressed, the author had to remind the people, he had to remind the people to be present in one another's lives. Verse 25, he reminds the people, do not neglect the importance of meeting together. Don't stop being present in each other's lives. 
Now, let me give you some background information on this particular church, because while the reasons for not being present in each other's lives are different from the church that we find in the letter to Hebrews and our context, I think if we understand what's going on uh, in the church of Rome, I think you'll speak volumes into ours. So let me tell you a little bit about this church to whom the letter is written. Uh, The book is addressed uh, to Christians that live in Rome, and as we know throughout this letter, this church, this group of Christians, they were persecuted. They were suffering, they were persecuted, they were threatened. But there was one way out. There was one way to avoid persecution, and that was to say that they were not Christians, but that they were Jews. A little bit more uh, background information. Going all the way back to the first century, uh, there was a political fight. It was between... um, Uh, two political figures uh, fighting for the throne. It was between Caesar Augustus, who was named Octavian, and Mark Anthony. And in this political battle, the Jews had picked the right side. They had picked Octavian. And when Octavian rose to the throne, the Jews went to him and they said, listen, we were on your side the entire time. Now, give us religious freedom. Let us worship our God. It's not that we don't respect the Roman government, but we worship Yahweh. And so would you allow us to do this? And so Jews were granted special permission. They were granted special permission and exception from worshiping the Roman gods. Now, when it came to Christians, it was a different story because Christians were not Jews. And so there came a time in first century when the persecution became so strong, an easy way to avoid all of this was to simply say, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Jew. Now this was a very easy way out because early on in the first century, many people considered Christianity to be just a subsect of Judaism. Many people confuse Judaism and Christianity. And so, to avoid persecution altogether, Christians simply said, I'm a Jew. So, they stopped meeting together. They, it, and it wasn't like they renounced Jesus, but they stopped meeting together as a community. And they went back to their old ways. They went to, back to temple worship, uh, went back to keeping Torah, while nominally being a Christian. They thought, okay, you know what? I can just confess Jesus privately, but let me remain a Jew. This is what they were doing. Now, I know this, is a, this, is, this context is a bit foreign, but imagine if the U.S. government said, if you become a Jew, you don't have to pay taxes. You don't have to pay income taxes. You don't have to pay sales taxes. You don't have to pay federal, state, and local. You know, say goodbye to your Berkheimer papers. You don't have to pay taxes at all. Would you be tempted? You know, I assume many Christians would claim that they were Jews because there's a way to rationalize it, right? You can say, well, you know, we both read the Old Testament and technically we worship the same God. 
So I can be a private Christian. I can be a Christian in secret. I can confess Jesus on my own, but socially and outwardly, I can be a Jew to avoid taxes. See, that's what the early Christians were doing. Because persecution was so strong, they said, you know what? An easy way to avoid all of this is to just go back to temple worship while confessing Christ privately. And so people were leaving the community, they were leaving the churches, and they were going back to the old former ways. But you see, here's where the problem lies. This is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. If Jesus was just a reformer of Judaism, if Christianity is just a subsect of Judaism, Jesus cannot be Savior, and there is absolutely no salvation. The author of Hebrews is saying this. He writes this letter to make the point, either you accept the centrality of Jesus, either you accept the supremacy of Jesus, or you accept nothing at all. He's saying this, if Jesus does not change everything, he is nothing. You cannot have it both ways. Either you accept Jesus for all that he is and for everything that he's done as your Lord and as your Savior, or he is nothing. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23, this is what the author is writing. That's, this is what he is getting at. He's saying, think about Jesus. As you, go, as you go back to your temple worship and as you go back to the old Jewish ways, think about what Jesus has done. He was the great high priest. He is the one who has gone beyond the temple. He is the one who's gone beyond the curtain. And through him, he has now ushered in a way to God the Father. He's saying, in the face of persecution, do not forsake Christ. Do not leave the community. Do not shrink back. If we look on to the following verses, he's saying, hold fast the confession because Jesus has accomplished our salvation. Do not fear because he who promised is faithful. You know, these words in Hebrews 10 are actually strong words. They're strong words for a community that has been dispersed due to fear. But notice the author doesn't say, hey, keep hiding. Just keep believing Jesus in secret. Believe in Jesus by yourself, alone in your room, in secret. No, he says this, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, you must keep meeting together. He says, be present in each other's lives. Keep encouraging one another because Christians are in fear. Your brothers and your sisters are in fear. So go to them and encourage them. He's saying this, the Christian needs the church. And so go be the church for one another. By your actions, by your words, remind fellow believers that Jesus is, in fact, king. Keep meeting and tell your brothers and sisters who are fearful that it's Jesus who is Lord. You know, if in the face of persecution, the author of Hebrews can speak such bold words, 
if he can speak such bold words because of his conviction that Jesus is Lord and Savior. There is no argument or excuse that we can conjure up for not committing to meet, for not committing to be present in each other's lives. Whether it's our busyness, our schedules, our introvertedness, our children's extracurricular activities, these things are not an excuse for nominal private Christianity. There's a quote by John Piper recently, and uh, just don't show it yet, but um, there's a quote uh, by John Piper, who's a pastor, and um, I want to read you this quote, and I don't mean to aim it at anyone specifically, but I do um, wish to aim it at everyone, generally. If we can click on the next slide, this is what he writes. He says this, as he thinks upon Hebrews and everything that the early church was going through, and even now the churches uh, throughout the world, he says this, there is a great gulf between the Christianity that wrestles with whether to worship at the cost of imprisonment and death and the Christianity that wrestles with whether the kids should play soccer on Sunday morning. See, the author of Hebrews, in the face of persecution and even death, he's saying, don't forsake the faith. Keep being present with one another. Be the church to each other because your brothers and sisters are in fear. They are shrinking back. So go speak to them. If the author of Hebrews can speak such bold words in such dire situations, can we not also heed to these words in whatever situation that we are in? If the author of Hebrews can tell Christians in danger to keep meeting together, to be present in each other's lives, whatever it is that we struggle with, whether it's our tendency to social isolation, our meritocracy, our propensity to not value or consider relationships valuable, or just simply, you know what, I would rather stay home today and watch Netflix than be present in someone's life. If that's you, whatever it may be, I would ask you, would you consider playing a greater role in the kingdom by physically being committed to your brother and sister in the faith? Would you be present in their life to remind them that Jesus is Lord? Let me give you some practical instructions. So how can we, pres how can we be present in each other's lives? Well, as trivial as this may sound, this is a practical instruction. I wanna ask our congregation, Please listen carefully during the announcement. I know it's a bit anticlimactic, right? Especially during a message, if we're talking about how to love one another and be present in each other's life, we can start by actually listening to the announcements, which I know many of our congregants don't do, because they always ask, hey, when is this? What is this? See, the announcements that we share are all, are all opportunities for us to be present in each other's life. And I would go a step further. When you do show up, when you are present, if we can look at verse 10 
uh, chapter 10, 24. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. This means when you do show up, or if you do show up, if you are present, this means this. Don't show up thinking, hey, what can I get out of this? Don't be present, always measuring, is this worth my time or not? Don't be present in each other's life thinking, is this person appreciating what I do? But the author of Hebrews says, before you're present, before you gather, consider how you can stir one another up to love and good works. Think about how you can help this brother or this sister whom you're going to meet, how he or she can be stirred to greater love and greater works. You know, the easiest way to stir people to love is, the easiest way is to actually love them. Love breeds love. Love people. Because when you love people, that will stir them up to love. The second practical point, if I can, um, so first, you know, consider how you can stir one another up. And so before you're present, you know, really pray and think, okay, when I go, when I'm present in someone's life, how can I encourage this person, or how can I stir them up, right? And the second point is verse 25. He says this, encourage them, encourage them. Instill confidence in them, or more simply, just give them courage. Remind them of the hope that they have. So when you be present, simply put, don't go expecting, what can I get out of it? Is this worth my time? Is this person understanding what I'm doing? Or simply, should I, you know, is, is this something for me? But be present in each other's life. Don't suck life out, right? But give life. Be present with the thought, how can I build the people up? You know, um, if I can just speak candidly from the heart, right now we are at a time where we need to radically change the way we view the church. I think we have falsely equated attending a function or attending a worship service as being a part of church. But church is not a location. Church is not a building. Church is not a function. The church is a people. It's a gathering of people. This means there is no way for us to properly do church, to do church in the proper biblical sense without actually getting into the lives of other people. So, hypothetically speaking, Hypothetically, if someone comes to this physical location, 706 Whitmer Road, if they come on a Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m., they drop off their kids at Sunday school, and they sit through this entire service for about an hour, hour and a half, they listen to everything, they soak everything in, 
and then they leave when it's over without talking to anyone or without interacting with a single human being, can we say that that person actually did church? Was he or she a part of church? Again, this is hypothetical, because I know none of us does that. You see, we don't go to church, but we belong to the church. We don't attend church, but we meet with the church. The church is not a building. Rather, the church gathers to meet in a building. If we want to do church, there is no way for us to do church without physically being present, without physically being invested in one another, without physically caring for one another. For us to do church in the proper sense, we must commit to one another. And I say this because there is now this radical understanding that church is just a place we come to on a Sunday morning for an hour, hour and a half. In fact, there are some supposed churches who have gone the way of virtual reality church services. Please don't laugh, it's true. There are some churches who have gone the way of virtual reality baptisms where you put on this virtual you you put on this virtual reality gear and you're in this world with other people and you sit through a church service we don't go to church but we belong to the church and so would you do church in this way would you commit to being a part of people's lives would you be present with one another considering how to love them Would you encourage one another? Would you give courage to each other, reminding each other that he who promised is faithful? If our goal and our aim is to love one another, we must start with being present. It is impossible to love someone without knowing the person. It is impossible to love someone without being available to that person. It's impossible to love someone without spending time with that person. And so would you be the church to other Christians, to other brothers and sisters who are fearful, to other Christian brothers and sisters who are shrinking back, to other Christian brothers and sisters who have lost sight of the hope that they have? Would you be the church to them? And week in and week out, as we gather, can we do church in the proper biblical sense, investing in each other, caring for one another, encouraging one another, and spurring one another to love and good deeds? Let me uh, just end by uh, speaking a little bit more on David Brooks. Um, I mentioned him earlier, but David Brooks, uh, well-known writer, bestseller, writer for the Times, Um, more recently he um, spoke very openly, transparently, about his own conversion story. 
David Brooks grew up as a Jew, but recently he turned to Christ and he found the Lord. There was a moment in his life where he was exploring, because he grew up a Jew, but he was exploring whether or not, uh, you know, this Christianity was real, was true, and he spent his life wondering, you know, what is the purpose to my life? Where am I headed? All of this seems meaningless. What is the answer? And he found Jesus. Now, in his new book, uh, The Second Mountain, he, he explores or he, he, he writes in details how he found Jesus. And he says this, he found Jesus not through intellectual argument, but he found Jesus because of people, because he was loved by other people. Uh, there's a moment in, in the book where he writes, um, you know, uh, there's this uh, great Christian preacher by the name of John Stott. Uh, he was a well-known preacher uh, globally in the 1950s and 60s, and David Brooks had the opportunity to interview John Stott for the New York Times. This is the first time John Stott ever appeared on the Times. And David Brooks, as he's interviewing this man, wondering who is this Christian preacher, he thought he was more in the line of uh, Billy Graham or uh, Franklin Graham. But when he sat down to speak with John Stott, he found that John Stott was not interested in himself, talking about himself, but John Stott was interested in David Brooks. He kept asking, so where are you? What do you believe in? What is your life about? And David Brooks, who's a writer, he says, I found this to be extremely weird because usually when I go to interview people, they only talk about themselves. But here was this man interested in me. He said it felt very, very uncomfortable. When he started to explore more the Christian faith, he said his friends started to send him books. He said he had received over 300 books that tried to convince him to be a Christian. And of those 300, more than 100 were mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Everyone just sent them mere Christianity. Read this, read this, and you can become a Christian. And David Brooks says, that did not convert me. But he said, I became a Christian when I met this woman named Anne. And she explained to me the doctrine of grace. She sat with me. She talked with me. She spent time with me. And when my life was crumbling and I was looking for purpose, she loved me. And as David Brooks, he writes in his book of how he became a Christian and what our society needs to go back to, he says this, it's not about intellectual arguments, but it's about relationships. This is what he writes in, in, in an excerpt in his book. He says this, our society suffers from a crisis of connection, a crisis of solidarity. We live in a culture of hyper-individualism. There is always a tension between self and society, between the individual and the group. And over the past 60 years, we have swung too far towards the self. The only way out is to rebalance, to build a culture that steers people toward relation, community, and commitment, the things we most deeply yearn for, yet undermine with our hyper-individualistic way of life. Church, can we be the church to one another? Can we be the church to other Christian brothers and sisters who are shrinking back? Would you commit to being present 
in each other's life, investing your time and your energy for each other, reminding them that the day is soon approaching, reminding them that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray.